Please note that this episode contains discussions about content that some people might find disturbing, including infanticide and of the issues that accompany the death of an infant. Listener discretion is advised. This is Classic City Crime. Welcome, welcome, welcome back. I'm Cameron J. Oglethorpe House towers on Lumpkin Street on the school's campus here in Athens, a nine-story brick high-rise. The dorm is commonly referred to as locals and students, like me at one time, as O-House. With a capacity of 500 students, according to a University of Georgia website, there's undoubtedly many stories, and yes, college secrets, that the walls keep silent, decade after decade. But what if I told you that this storm, home to so many each year, held the keys to a dark, sinister story too? A story of innocence robbed, of answers painfully sought with no results, and of one community's effort to make sure that what happened in that dormitory in 1996 is always remembered. More importantly, that the what, no, the who, was discovered is never forgotten. Monday, January 8th, 1996 is one that will remain in the hearts and on the minds of so many students law enforcement, and yes, Athenians, forever. It was a cold winter day in Athens. Historical records actually show an average temperature of around 46 degrees. That's when an officer Wade of the University of Georgia's police department responded to a call. The summons to O-House. The reason, well, here's what the officer wrote in 1996 in a report obtained through an open records request with the University of Georgia's police department. On January 8th, 96, at 1611 hours, I was dispatched to the basement floor ladies' room at Oglethorpe Hall in reference to the discovery of a human fetus in the restroom. Upon arrival at 1618 hours, I confirmed the discovery and closed off the area to secure the scene. Detectives were notified, and upon arrival, the scene was turned over to Lieutenant Boone, end quote. Yes, that's right. An infant had been found in the dormitory bathroom basement by an unsuspecting janitor who happened upon the crime scene. Can you imagine? Now I'm going to try to paint a picture here of the scene based on news reports and the interviews that I've conducted. The basement bathroom in O'House sat near an elevator near the student lounge and gaming area. I think they said there was a pool table there for students. A trash can, though, set just beside that bathroom door, containing the lifeless, unclothed body of a white baby boy. What investigators would soon learn would shock everyone, as this janitor and the responding officer truly had no idea of what they had just discovered. Now we're going to talk about a lot of different things in this very special episode. We're going to talk about the discovery and the investigation, And we're going to talk about where the case stands today. Is there hope for resolution? But before we get to that, if there's anything that I've learned through this podcast and that you all know about me, 
It's how important I know it is to connect with the people who lived these stories, particularly those who led the cause for justice, who led the search for the truth. The University of Georgia Police Department has a long history here in the classic city. It was established in the late 1960s and an article from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution from January 13, 1996, noted that this department actually had become one of the largest law enforcement agencies in our state. That's over 70 officers covering what we all know to be 5,000 plus acres of university property. And there's one thing I want to make very clear here that was really important for me to understand too. When a crime occurs outside of the University of Georgia, such as the case of University of Georgia law student Tara Baker in 2001, which we talked about in season one, the athens Clark County Police Department has jurisdiction over the case. You know, in many cases of crimes against students like Tara or like Jennifer Stone, we do see sometimes a collaboration between the two entities, but ACCPD is in charge. However, when a crime occurs on campus, it is the University of Georgia Police Department who responds and leads the investigation. And that is exactly what happened in 1996, when the police department was led by Chief Chuck Horton. I was a police chief. Well, I started at the university. That was my, my entire career. I, you know, to be quite honest with you, that was never even in my wheelhouse, to be quite honest with you. But I, I'd gotten a degree. I, I was newly married, and I wanted to go back to school, and somebody told me about the University Police Department, and so I got hired and was, you know, went on and got a couple more degrees, but, you know, that that got me to that day, and uh, that January day. Now, Chief Horton recalls that January day very vividly, and he acknowledges that this was a crime unlike anything the university had ever seen. Uh, if I, yeah, I remember pretty, pretty well where I was. I was talking with Lisa Boone, who was my administrative assistant. She was captain. She ran a lot of our administrative functions, uh, kept up with the, the day-to-day finances. And uh, so she and I could have a meeting on that. And uh, she dealt with the press. So she was uh, my kind of go-to person. Jimmy Williamson was... Uh, I think Jimmy had just come back Georgia State. So I was sitting in there talking to Lisa, and it was a, a bad weather day, if I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was you know early January, and it may have been rainy, sleeting, that kind of stuff. And the call came in, and they told Lisa was on the got the phone because it's her office, and we were told by dispatch that they had found a, a dead baby at uh Oglethorpe house so we you know that's not something you hear of very often and so you know we she and i went you know got the car and and went down there and i i thought you know somebody's playing a joke mm-hmm. you know real tasteless joke but once we got there that that wasn't the case and so uh you know the ball started rolling then Assistant Chief Connie Sampson had been serving in law enforcement for 21 years on the day of this discovery in O'House. She had previously spent a decade with the athens Clark County Police Department, and she too remembers this call coming in and acknowledges that at first, 
they had no idea of the reality and the gravity of the situation they were dealing with. This seems like the call came in right about before five o'clock, and it seems like Chuck and Jimmy Williamson, I think, went to the scene. Chuck may have told you this, but initially it just it looked like maybe a stillbirth until it was examined by the coroner or maybe even at the hospital, the initial examination at the hospital. And so we knew then uh, that uh, that it, it was much more uh, involved than uh, a stillbirth. So here's a little statistic for you. There were over 29,000 students, just over that, at the university in 1996. And according to data from the University of Georgia Police Department, from 1993 to 1994, we do see a lot of property crimes being regularly noted as to be expected. We see a few cases of sexual assault that are reported. And I was curious, though, had Assistant Chief Sampson ever heard of something happening like this in Athens? at the University of Georgia? Well, of course not. Yeah, not to my knowledge. And um, I really would say no. The University of Georgia had a real good uh, record-keeping system since the police department was started. And so there was nothing like that uh, in the records, no. So let's learn more about the discovery in that basement bathroom from Chief Horton. Now, he assisted me in navigating how to really talk about this case in a respectful way because it really took me a long time to decide to do this. And a reminder here, we are going to be getting into details of what was found that day, and some listeners might find this disturbing. I'll be, I'll be a little I will just say the baby was in the trash can. It had been found by the cleaning crew. The cleaning crew had just cleaned the bathroom. You can still smell the, you know, the cleaning fluid, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. It was just a very clean bathroom, except what was in that trash can. And it was a trash can, if I remember right, it was, you know, a taller one that had a cap on the top where you hit the door to drop your paper products. And so that's that's what it was. If you can tell us, what what was the cause of death? Uh, what what led to the baby ultimately being killed? All, all I'm going to say is there was a lot of trauma to that child. A lot of trauma. It was a full-term baby. That was what he came into the world and, mm. and had to experience. I'm going to jump in here for a moment because according to the state crime lab report obtained by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution at the time, there were wounds to the baby's throat, but it was a puncture wound to the heart that officials say led to the death of the seven-pound unclothed little baby boy. Now, there's variation in both reports and in the interviews I've conducted on just how long officials believe the newborn was alive. Some say a few hours, some say less than that, and just as a research note, I found that 45%, 45% of all child murders, not just infants, of course, occur within the first 24 hours of life. And one thing that all of these reports agree on, and everyone I've talked to agrees on, is this. The child had been born healthy and alive, and it had lived some time after birth before succumbing to its injuries. So once these details became clear to the investigators, the investigation really kicked into action. There were, of course, those who wondered if this might involve a University of Georgia student, perhaps an employee, 
Others pondered who at all could do such a thing. The reality is, though, they had to find out. That, of course, being the first order of business for Chief Horton. To be honest with you, where that bathroom was located, you, in my opinion, you, you would have, the chance of somebody just coming in off the street and locating that bathroom, I, that would be very difficult, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the total layout, and I'm sure that dorm has changed since then. But they, there was a like a back glass door that came into like a lounge area. And you walked around, and you would go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And then you went through a door, and the elevators were out there. So it would have been, I mean, somebody from outside could come come into Oglethorpe House that in that direction, catch an elevator, and go up. It was I, I, I can't remember what the floor was called. And so then, you know, it's, it's trying to figure out, you know, the, the, the easy thing to, to is somebody knew somebody that was pregnant mm-hmm. and they, they turn you on to that, that name, but that wasn't the case. It wasn't like as, as time moved on, it wasn't like somebody knew of somebody who was pregnant and all of a sudden they see them a few days later and they're not pregnant and they don't have a baby. We didn't get that. And, and as you start getting into to these types of crimes, uh, one, you find out that the type of trauma that we were dealing with doesn't happen very often at all. Mm-hmm. You would find, and I talked to a number of people in other states who were dealing with similar type crimes, but none of them had the trauma Hmm. you know the fbi profilers they they just didn't see the type of violence and trauma that we were dealing with Mm -hmm. usually in in an infant case it they die of the elements they're left outside they don't have the ability to to warm themselves so that's a, a a cause of death or suffocation but not maybe drowning, but mm-hmm. not not what we dealt with. You know, I remember there was a case over at, I don't want to name the school, but it was in Alabama. And there was, they found a baby in the trash chute in a dormitory. And one of the a couple of workers cleaning found the baby. Mm-hmm. Well, the baby was wrapped in a sweatshirt. And so when the police were, you know, simply asking, has anybody seen anybody wearing a sweatshirt like this? Oh, yeah, I know who that is. And they go there, they they had a name. Well, we never got anything like that. Nobody had an idea, really, of go talk to this girl. And I can't imagine how frustrating, especially dealing with a child, that must have been to not have some lead like that come forward for you, right? It's horrible. And that aspect of a lack of solid direction and investigative leads is something that Assistant Chief Connie Sampson also expressed when we talked about the case. In most of these instances, there's something to go on, right? Well, in the case of this infant, named Jonathan Foundling, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, there was little, if anything, that pointed in a certain direction. Like I said, 
I worked with the Athens Police. Well, I haven't said that, but I'm saying it now. <laughs> I worked with the Athens Police Department for 10 years mm-hmm. before I went to the University of Georgia Police Department. And so I had worked murders. I had worked crime scenes. I had taken forensic courses. I had taken photography, forensics photography. I worked all of those kinds of cases that you hear about in municipal police departments. But certainly in most of those cases, probably all that I can think of that were crimes against persons, there was some kind of evidence and some kind of lead lead there. And so you had some forensics to follow or certainly witnesses. And, and you've been in this long enough to know that if there's a crime against persons, it's witnesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, you really do have a, in, in most cases, you have a lot of physical evidence to work with and an awful lot of witness kinds of uh, statements that you could use to put the evidence together and put a case together. Mm-hmm. But then this this is what really I remember about the case with the little Jonathan was that there was very little physical evidence and no witnesses. Mm-hmm. And we kept thinking certainly throughout the investigation and maybe even now that uh, somebody would come forward with some kind of information. Nobody ever has, which is, again, is real unusual. And so we could, we thought then and, and really still think to this day that it may very well just have been the mother and an act and that she was alone and no witnesses whatsoever. Now, even without those tangible leads, it did not stop this University of Georgia Police Department from doing their jobs effectively, from covering so much ground. With that search for the truth came some hopeful moments for the investigators, and of course, yes, many letdowns, but nevertheless continued perseverance for the truth. So, what were some of those leads that have come in over the last 26 years? Well, For starters, there were people who at the time reported seeing a woman around the time of this incident possibly occurring that was seen leaving the dorm. Straight, shoulder-length blonde hair. She was described as wearing a large green winter coat, khaki pants, perhaps a skirt. But whomever she was, Horton and investigators never determined. Nothing ever came of it. They interviewed over 800 possible witnesses now, ranging from locals to university students and staff. And at one point, two women who lived in the dorm had their DNA compared to that of infant Jonathan Foundling, but again, not a match. In the fall of 1996, a bit more hope crosses Chuck Horton's desk when there is someone at the Clark County Jail whose DNA needs to be tested. Again, no match. Not the mother. And then there was that time that might have given a lot of hope when someone came in and came forward, finally feeling convicted, saying they had overheard a conversation in a restaurant that surrounded this case. Yet another tip, however, proved unfruitful. And how do we know that? We know that because this case remains unsolved 26 years later. I mentioned the name Jonathan Foundling because this case quickly and obviously became very personal for the people involved. 
the child clearly more than just another case number on an investigator's desk or shelf. As one person put it, the child had no one to speak for him. So here's an interesting fact. Foundling, the last name given to the child, is by law in Georgia the last name given to an infant without identification or without a next of kin. But you see, that name Jonathan, it's a little more personal than that. I personally thought it might be a play on John Doe. But no, this idea came from Assistant Police Chief Sampson. Take a listen. In fact, I was the one who named the, the infant Jonathan. My youngest son is Jonathan, and so <laughs> I just remember it, uh, that the baby just had nobody. And so it felt good and felt close uh, to name him after my son. And, and the officials, I don't know who they were, went along with me using that name. So you can only imagine how heartbreaking this case was for Connie and Chuck. I mean, specifically without a resolution or a solid thing to go on. And I can tell by talking to them, this case still weighs heavy on their hearts and minds. Three or four days into the investigation, I remember just needing a break. And I remember going to one of the department stores and just looking at warm blankets, like uh, little Jonathan should have had a blanket or something. And so that was really the sad part about the entire set of circumstances. Uh, he just had nobody and it was cold and he never, never, never was warm. He was never warm. In fact, Chief Horton still seems to go through each and every possible scenario looking and trying to make some sense of what happened. So I'm, I'm wondering, okay, that's what police officers do is try to speculate on, on what a motive is, is maybe it wasn't the child as the target, it was the father. Mm. That's just, that's a theory. I, well, and it was a male child. I don't, you know, don't know if it would have, they would have done the same thing to a female. Interesting. That's, and, that's you know, really interesting. Yeah. And here's the other thing. Why wouldn't they have aborted the pregnancy? You could have done that, or, or the mother could have done that. Unless, unless, and I know this is gonna sound crazy, but this is, you, you don't, you don't abort the, the, the pregnancy. Maybe because you don't believe in abortion. But nothing says you can't do the trauma to the child once it's here. Then you don't violate your feelings about abortion. You did you did it ever cross your mind that the father could have been the one to do it? Certainly. Certainly. That's why I say I don't think there's a lot of people that know about it. Otherwise, you know, people talk. People like to talk. Yeah, and so I, you know, I can speculate, I can come up with all, you know, things to try to, to make some sense for a motive, but I won't know until the person responsible is called. Does Chief Sampson do the same thing? Wonder what happened and why? Well, yes, of course. Yeah, I 
we thought that she uh, obviously was a, a desperate person, uh, whether it was a young lady, uh, student age or, or not. And we still think it was a student age person because of where the incident occurred. We always thought she must have really just been felt real, real desperate to commit that particular act. I, you know, she could very well be out in the world right now uh, with another family and a successful life and a successful career. She may have spiraled into just a real, real bad set of circumstances because of what happened. Mm. I don't, and of course, I don't think we'll ever know unless she comes for it or unless somebody who knows her comes for it. You've heard about the discovery of baby Jonathan Foundling about what occurred and how police still continue to search for who killed him, but also to find out why, to find out how it might have or in the future be prevented. You've also heard what investigators feel here about possible motives of the case, but I wanted to find out from a psychologist what this crime might say about the person who is responsible. What might he or she have been facing Struggles, lack of resources, depression, anxiety, abuse, or perhaps mental illness, or a struggle over morality and values, maybe anger, frustration. I'm going to leave it there because I could go on and on, but when we come back, Dr. Deborah Steckler is here to discuss the case and will end by honoring the life of baby Jonathan Foundling 26 years later, and yes, we're going to discuss how there might be hope for resolution soon. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. This episode of Classic City Crime is brought to you by Larry Baumwald Insurance, located at 260 North Millage Avenue, right here in the Classic City. Larry has been in business for 47 years, selling auto, homeowner's insurance, life insurance, health insurance, and small business plans too. The Baumwald Agency offers the personal service that we all need in our everyday lives, and Larry prides himself on not having a voicemail. Larry, Dustin, or Leanne will answer your call during business hours, and someone will be at the desk as well. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And if you're listening anywhere in the Southeast, or if you're in California, know this, the agency is licensed in many states across the country. Customer service is their stronghold, so give my friends a call at Larry Baumwald Insurance Agency at 706-353-8444 for all your insurance needs. All right, Classic City Crime, thank you so much for sticking with me through this very emotional episode. I know it's difficult to listen to, but I think it's important, important for us to remember and to document this for whoever out there might know the truth. With that in mind, this is the perfect point to remind you that anyone who might have any information that could finally close this case please call the University of Georgia Police Department at 706-542-2200. And of course, if you'd like to share this podcast to help get the story out there, well, I'd appreciate that too. I'm hopeful that we can help, even if in a small way. I thought it was important, as always, to discuss the psychology of this case to help us understand what might have happened. And it's important to note a few things here before we begin. First, another reminder, there will be very sensitive and for some disturbing information discussed here. 
Listener discretion continues to be advised. And second, a reminder that this does not necessarily reflect my views and that Dr. Steckler is speaking in a general sense and in hypothesizing about what might have gone wrong. I'm excited to welcome her back, though. She joined us in our two previous extended miniseries. First, the 1977 murder of T.K. Hardy, and yes, the tragic murders of 1987. You can find those wherever you get your podcasts or at ClassicCityCrime.com. And she's become a dear friend of mine. And when it came to me dealing with the realities of this case, having first read about it, she's the first person I call to talk it out with. In fact, she has experience in teaching about this subject in general. Well, I've taught actually two classes that I taught um, can contribute to a, a creating a picture of what might have happened in this situation. Uh, one, of course, is forensic psychology. And forensic psychology does deal with neonaticide. Neonaticide is the killing of a newborn and as well as killing children of older children. So forensic psychology deals with that. Um, I also teach or taught developmental psychology, um, adolescent development in particular. And so, you know, a common topic that you touch on in that class is adolescent pregnancy and what can what contributes to that and the cognitive development of adolescents and emerging adults and that sort of thing. So both of those classes can inform a situation like this. Now, our talk about Jonathan Foundling and his case began as nearly every conversation I have with her about how sad and heartbreaking it is. It's just so overwhelmingly sad. I mean, it's a horrible crime, of course, a horrible occurrence. But it's just... When you, when you think about everything that probably went, you know, contributed to this situation, what was going through, and I'm assuming it was the mother who probably killed the child. That's typically the way it works in deaths of a, of a newborn. Um, if you think about what was going, what was probably going through the mother's mind and the situation that led up that, it's just so sad and, and could have been avoided. And that's the thing, that it, it all could have been avoided with some maturity, both emotional maturity and cognitive maturity and a better relationship maybe with the father and a more open relationship with her family and a willingness to seek help. You know, it could have been avoided, but it, but it wasn't for a variety of reasons. I wanted to start at the basics here. What do cases of violence against a child, specifically an infant and in cases of homicide, look like? And as we've heard investigators allude to earlier, how do we typically see these cases reflect the violence that occurred in Jonathan Foundling's case? Take a listen. No, that is very atypical. Usually it is the mother who kills the newborn. The way that sounds is not typical of the way it happens. Typically, when mothers kill newborns, the death of the newborn is really at the hands of the parent or the mother. Uh, weapons are, are not typically used. Methods of death involve 
drowning or strangulation or some sort of head trauma or suffocation or exposure, just, you know, abandoning the baby in the woods or a ditch along the road or something along those lines. So, you know, more passive methods, I mean, at the hands, not of the parent, not involving weapons. So when you talk about a case of neonaticide where the parent used a knife, like in this case, I'm assuming it was a knife. They never really came out and said, I don't think, but mm-hmm. I think that's a safe assumption. Where a parent uses a knife or a gun, that that's really unusual. Only something like 25% of cases of neonaticide involve weapons. Now, you might be wondering, what is often the root cause of something like this? Why do these events, as rare as they might be, happen? The motive well, here's Dr. Steckler's answer, and of course, it's important to note that it's not specific to this case alone. Typically, in a situation like this, it's not a situation where the mother, you know, is is carrying out violence specifically targeted at that infant. What I mean is the mother is not mad at the baby or the baby seems to represent more of a problem that she needs to dispose of. Usually what motivates neonaticide is fear, fear of her parents' reactions, for example, um, or, you know, how she thinks her parents may react fear of the loss of the father of the baby, her boyfriend, you know, so fear of losing this romantic relationship, fear of losing her lifestyle. So a lot of the motivation for behavior like this has to do with with fear. It's motivated by fear. She's afraid of of disappointing her parents. And and we all have grown up with this fear of disappointing our parents. I mean, I bet you a lot of people can relate to this idea because when we were growing up, when we were a little kid and we did something wrong, and if our parents said to us, I'm so disappointed in you, that was like the worst thing. Well, imagine that magnified. Here you are, You know, you're in your teens, your early 20s, and you don't want your parents to find out that you are pregnant, that you got pregnant, because you are so afraid that you are going to disappoint them, that they are going to get mad at you, that maybe they will kick you out of the family, disown you. And so, you know, that fear of of the parents' reactions. That is a huge motivator. And then on top of that, if the mother is afraid that if father finds out that she is pregnant and has this baby, that he's going to abandon her, that just motivates her even more to dispose of this problem. And in cases of neonaticide, most of the time, the pregnancy is secret and hidden. So the boyfriend might not even have any idea. The parents might not even have any idea. You know, she's been wearing baggy clothes as she goes along or eating a lot so people will think that she's just putting on weight. 
So she's kept this situation secret. And she's afraid then if she shows up with this baby that that is going to have her parents react badly towards her, that the father, if the relationship is still there, that that's going to interfere with her romantic relationship with the father, that having this baby is going to change her lifestyle so much. She's going to have to drop out of school. She's going to have to give up her friends. She's going to, you know, be tied down. And so it's not so much about the baby as a human being it's more about the baby as a problem that needs to be disposed of. Mm-hmm. And so the, I think that the, the motivating factors in a situation like this are fear, like what I've been talking about, and then the denial on her part. Because it's not like she's been going along for nine months thinking, oh, yeah, I'm pregnant, but I'm hiding from the world. I mean, fear is all wrapped up in this as well. So she's not even letting herself fully realize that she is pregnant because that would mean coming to grips with the situation, preparing, you know, for having this child, changing her life. So she's not even allowing herself to think about being pregnant and what this means. She's hiding it from everybody else as well as herself. And so what happens is then, after nine months, and she goes into labor, she's not prepared for this because she has not allowed herself to think about it. And so... I mean, it sounds weird to think that this birth process is sort of sprung on her, you know, like it's a surprise, but it sort of is because she hasn't let herself think about it. Gosh, it's so heartbreaking to me. And, you know, I can't even begin to understand, and I want to make this clear, I am a man. I will never understand what it's like to experience any of the realities that Dr. Steckler is talking about. I did want to give the mother the benefit of the doubt here, though, right? We've already heard Dr. Steckler mention how a father might not be aware or even supportive of the child's existence. But what if they themselves were responsible for the crime and not the mother? Does this even happen, really? You know, fathers typically do not commit neonaticide. There is very little, if any, information that I have seen about fathers in today's society, in today's time. Very little, if any, information about fathers committing neonaticide. If you're talking about older children, well, that changes things. Fathers have been known to kill older children, but not newborns. And so, you know, and if the father was involved, that would mean that there would be two people who definitely knew. And it would be really hard to keep this a secret for 25 years, like this case of Jonathan Foundling. 
Now, I know there can be a lot of emotions surrounding this case. Some might try to make it about politics, others about vengeance. But for me, it's just simply about the truth, about Jonathan. With the overwhelming sadness I'll admit that I have felt for the innocent life lost here, there's also this part of me that does feel this heartbreak for the mother in whatever situation she was dealing with. I could never and would never excuse the violence of murder. But I also can't shake what must have been going through her mind, and more so how troubling it must be to have kept it a secret for 26 years. So here you've got this situation where this woman, you know, has been pregnant for nine months because this baby was carried to term. He was over seven pounds. Um, so she was pregnant for nine months. She kept it a secret all during that time from all the people in her life. I mean, there's a good chance that, that the father of the baby never knew about this. Um, so she kept it a secret. She gave birth, uh, presumably in that bathroom. And one of the things that I found kind of surprising was the way they found out about this situation was the cleaning crew went in there and were almost finished cleaning the bathroom. And then they found the baby in the trash can. So there was nothing before they found that baby to clue them in that maybe something had happened. So this secret keeping persisted. She must have done a really good job of cleaning up. And I know, you know, this is horrible. We don't want to think about the details. But just think about this. You know, the effort that she put into in, in, to keep this all secret, to cover up what she had done, and then she left to go on and live her life. And typically, mothers who commit neonaticide, they feel relief when it's all over. They feel relief because in their mind, they're not thinking – Oh, I killed this baby. Because if anybody thought that, how could they do it? You know, I mean, like you said, it's it's horrific. No, they're thinking, I've solved the problem. I've gotten rid of the problem. And so they go on and they feel relief that they can live their lives the way they want to, that their parents never had to find out. Maybe the boyfriend, the father of the baby, never had to find out. Their life really isn't interrupted. So they, they feel relief. They tend not to feel guilt because the denial is still going on. <laughs> I read, I read a, another, about another situation similar to this, except it was um, a woman who was like mid-20s or so, it was in South Dakota, I think, and she um, she gave birth. She was married. Um, she gave birth in her apartment, and she uh, left the baby in a ditch alongside the road, and then she, you know, went back to her life. And they, 
they caught her through DNA testing um, 25 years, 20, 25 years later or something. They positively identified her, that she was the mother, and then she said, yes, you know, that I left that baby. But she, she talked about what she thought about all those years. And she said every time that she would start to think about it, if she heard about it on the news, if there was an article in the newspaper, she would think, oh, that couldn't have been me. That, that wasn't what I did. And she would immediately stop thinking about it. She would not allow herself to go there. That's, that is powerful denial. And that's the mindset that is maintained. Is It's not guilt. They don't allow themselves to think about it enough to feel guilty. The overriding feeling is one of relief because they haven't let their parents found, find out. They haven't let other people find out. So they've kept their secret. I ended by asking Dr. Steckler, is there anything we can learn here? What can we do differently? And as you'll see here, a tough question to answer indeed. Hmm. There, you know, there, there are so many ways you could address that question. Um, one is that we have to have a realistic way to think about sex and a realistic way of teaching our children and adolescents about sex and helping them to integrate sex into their lives. I mean, still in our society, we, you know, sex, the topic of sex is a taboo subject. And all you have to do is look around and, and see the controversy that arises when school systems want to teach some sort of sex education in middle schools or high schools. You know, a lot of, there's, a, that makes a lot of people unhappy because they think that that is inappropriate. And so, you know, if, if sex is a taboo subject in our society, that just sparks the curiosity of children and adolescents, they have to find out about it on their own. And if we don't provide accurate information about sex, about its consequences, about the ways to avoid unwanted consequences, if we don't provide that accurate information to our children, we are going to continue to see high levels of adolescent pregnancies and all of that, you know, STDs and everything else. So we've, we've got to, as a society, come up with some way to convey more accurate and better information about sex that will allow people to see that this is just a normal part of life. We also have to, one of the things that bothered me about this 
case, when I was reading about it, is, you know, like you have mentioned several times, we are assuming that it was the mother who killed this child. And we are assuming that because that is the way that neonaticides typically occur. It is a homicide on the part of the mother. That And so if, if the situation is discovered and if they discover who the mother is who killed this child, she is the one who goes to trial. And she is the one who can end up in jail. You know, she's the one who bears all the consequences. That doesn't really seem right. It's a complicated story, and I think you've probably figured out by now. It's left me feeling conflicted in a variety of ways. I'm sure it has you that way, too. Need a breath? Well, so do I. Let's take a moment to hear about some positivity from a new podcast in town that I think you should check out. And it's all about those little decisions that make a big difference. When we return, we'll end this episode by talking about 1996 once more for a brief moment before updating you on some important information regarding the case today. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Victoria Cooper, and I'm the host of a podcast called Little Decisions. It's another Georgia Grown podcast, but I talk about all things kindness. Are you looking for something new to listen to? Are you tired of all the negativity in the news today? Check out Little Decisions, the podcast about kindness, connection, and community in the Athens and Winterville, Georgia area. Not from there? That's okay. You can still enjoy this podcast too. Come learn some practical and fun ways to bring more kindness into your everyday life. Subscribe and listen to Little Decisions wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Thank you for staying with me this long. I know it's been a tough story, but we've almost gotten through it. And how did we do it? Oh, yes, together. One thing that is so important to our mission here at Classic City Crime is to memorialize the lives of every victim's story that we share. But it's hard in this case, right? There's no life to really tell about. Jonathan never went to elementary school. He never went to high school or to college, got a degree, and grew up. None of that was a reality for him. But what we do know is that he was murdered at O House in 1996, having no family to be his voice. So that role fell to the Athens community, more specifically to people like Chuck Horton. And we had a very emotional moment because the chief began calling Jonathan, quote, our child back in 1996. I wanted to know why. Mm. Hold on a minute. Mm-hmm. He didn't have anybody but us. I mean, that. That's the simple thing. He just didn't have anybody. So he's ours. Yeah, that, you know, the person, maybe two, that were responsible for him, look what they did. They did that. So the only people left were us. And so that's that's what that comment came from. 
A funeral service was held for baby Jonathan, a graveside at Evergreen Memorial Park, where members of law enforcement actually served as the pallbearers. Over 300 Athenians attended the funeral to honor a life that would never be realized. The service was led by a priest from the UGA Catholic Center reportedly saying, quote, pray for the mother. We must all agree she's in great turmoil. There are many who will reach out to help her if she will come forward. It's been 26 years since that custodian made that fateful discovery of Jonathan Foundling's body in 1996. I can't imagine the sadness that must have filled this community I love, the hearts of law enforcement, and the minds of all Athenians as the stories filled the papers as time passed and as the case has remained unsolved. I reached out to the University of Georgia Police Department about this case many months ago, knowing they'd be unable to provide much information because the case is still ongoing. But I wanted to ask, how can we help in addition to telling the story? My offer? Let us raise money for genealogical DNA testing if needed. So what does that mean? Well, my friend Wayne Ford at the Athens Banner Herald recently wrote an extremely informative article about the case of Jonathan Foundling detailing how this new investigative technology could solve this two decades old mystery once and for all. So investigative genealogy is actually a relatively new concept as Ford pointed out in his article and it's mostly known due to the historic work of C.C. Moore of Parabon Nano Labs in Virginia. Now in short terms, experts like Moore are able to use reverse genealogy to identify, quote, the descendants of the ancestral couple. For example, even if a distant cousin of the mother or father of Jonathan Foundling were able to be identified, perhaps their parents could be too. Now, sometimes this takes weeks, sometimes months over a year, but one thing is certain, this could prove vital beyond someone just coming forward to bringing about answers for the community. So, what did the university have to say? Well, I'm going to let you determine what you think this means. They wrote to me, quote, We appreciate your kind words about the University of Georgia Police Department, as well as your interest in the Jonathan Foundling case. The investigation into the case by the UGA Police Department is still very much active and has been since the incidents occurred so many years ago. We would like to reassure you that all currently available scientific methodologies are actively being pursued in this investigation. While the offer of financial assistance is very much appreciated, we can also assure you that the investigation into this case has not been hindered due to finances. The UGA Police Department is dedicated to seeking out all investigative avenues going forward. Again, we appreciate your interest and care that you and your listeners clearly have for this case. End quote. How refreshing. So what do you think? Well, I'd say that sounds like a promising bit of news. For a community still seeking answers, perhaps it sounds to me like there could be resolution sooner rather than later. I'm going to close this special episode with a quote from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution from 1996. Forensic psychologist Stephen Shea said, quote, people either think the parent was an absolute monster or we tend to think of them as horrible victims. 
the truth tends to run somewhere in between. Thanks for tuning in. Be well. I'm Cameron J. Classic City Crime is hosted and produced by me, Cameron J. Original design by Kyle Kazaya and research support provided by Elizabeth DeRusso. You can find us online at ClassicCityCrime.com, on Facebook and Instagram at ClassicCityCrime, and on Twitter at CCCRIME Podcast. We look forward to seeing you right back here soon. We're doing new unsolved cases, and yes, finally bringing you the story of Effie's on Elm Street. Take care, everybody. <laughs>